Heavenly Father, uh, Father, I ask that you would guard the health of those who are a part of this body, whether in San Antonio or around the world. None of us will live forever, Father, and we're thankful for that, for a better future awaits us after we pass from this life. That is our hope of resurrection and what we all look forward to. But at the same time, Father, we long to be useful to you now, to serve out these days with strength for the purpose of reaching men and women with the gospel and of glorifying your name. And so for that reason, Father, I put before you the request that we would be made healthy, kept healthy, preserved in strength, and available to you in service. For those who may be sick, Father, I pray for quick recovery. For those of us who are healthy yet worried about the possibilities of disease, I pray that you would take away our fear and give us an assurance of your good purposes in all that come our way, all the things that we might face, and that in the meantime, Father, we won't take our health for granted. We'll put our strength to work for you every day. I thank you, Father, for the men and women who are serving behind the scenes in a church that is now separated but working together in the spirit. I pray for their diligence, Father, their, their patience in the work. I pray, Father, for them to see fruit and not to feel discouraged. We ask, Lord, that these days would serve a good purpose in all that they've accomplished, but come to an end soon so that we may resume the joy of gathering and serving together. Lord, today as we study, we enter into a new part of your scriptures, a new part of the story. We ask, Father, that this new part would edify us as all previous parts have and would drive us forward in a walk with you in a new and better way. We ask this in full confidence that you are teaching us this morning by your spirit, and in Jesus' name we ask these things, amen. Well, friends, as I mentioned earlier, we move now into a new part in Matthew's gospel, chapter 23. As we come into this chapter, we come to the end of Jesus' public ministry. It was three years earlier at another Passover that Jesus first launched his public ministry with the baptism of John at the River Jordan. And from that moment, Jesus set out to fulfill all the scriptures related to the Messiah's first coming to Israel. He recruited his disciples, he appointed some of them as apostles, and then he began moving around Judea teaching the crowds. He's healed countless sick and dispossessed people of demons. He's performed amazing miracles of one kind or another. He's walked the length and breadth of Judea. And as he's done all of these things, he's been preaching. Preaching repentance for the kingdom of God was at hand. Calling Israel to receive him as their king so that he might give them their promised kingdom. But Israel has failed to heed that call. They have, uh, apart from a few disciples, believed the word of their religious leaders. Six months earlier, you remember the nation committed what Jesus called the unforgivable sin. In that moment, the religious leaders told the people that Jesus was not their Messiah. He was working all his miracles with the power of Satan. And the crowd accepted that explanation over the proof that they saw with their own eyes. And as a result, both of the deception of those religious leaders, but also the willful disbelief of the people of Israel, Jesus withdrew his offer of the kingdom from that generation of Israel, as we studied back in chapter 12 of Matthew. He told them at that time that he was leaving their house, that is, the nation and their temple, desolate, and that they would not see him again until they called upon his name. 
And since that point, Jesus has withdrawn, for the most part, from public teaching, and he is now preparing his disciples for their role in leading the kingdom program after his departure. That's really what we've been studying now since chapter 12. Now, at this point in chapter 23, we're barely 48 hours away from Jesus' death. And in this chapter, Jesus now provides his final public statement, and it takes the form of a declaration of woe against the generation that's rejected him and against their leaders. His statement comes at the end of a very long day of teaching in the temple on the Tuesday, the week before he dies. And in this time of teaching, he's had to defend himself repeatedly from the inquisition of religious leaders coming to discredit him. He's endured altogether four challenges from Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, the various religious leaders of Israel in that day. And each time he's vindicated himself, turning the tables on them, showing them to be hypocrites, and proving himself to be that spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice, ready to go to the cross on our behalf. And in the next 24 hours from this moment, he will be arrested, and in about 36 hours from now, he'll be hanging on a cross. And so after the discourse that we now study in chapter 23, Jesus will make no further public proclamations. He goes quietly to the cross as a sheep goes before its shearers, Isaiah says. He's not gonna open his mouth again. The only time he'll speak is privately to his disciples at the uh, Last Supper and in the Olivet Discourse. uh, We're gonna study those two moments here soon. But for now, he has one more thing to say publicly, both to the crowds and to the religious leaders, and particularly to the way those religious leaders played the pivotal role in bringing Israel to this disastrous outcome. Let's begin in chapter 23, verse one. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, and therefore all they tell you to do, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. All right, this chapter opens with Matthew saying that Jesus is now speaking to the crowd and to the disciples, but In truth, his message is squarely focused on the religious leaders of Israel. They were the wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus uses that term in an earlier chapter of Matthew. And now Jesus is prepared to unmask these guys in front of the crowd. Because up to this moment, Jesus has been pretty cautious in the public statements that he's made about these men. He knew that if he provoked them, they could get in the way. They could cause him trouble and prevent him from carrying out the plan that the Father has given him. And so Jesus has been biding his time, waiting for a moment like this. But now, less than two days remaining before his death, Jesus takes the gloves off, and he's gonna pronounce woe on these men. And as he does, he exposes them for who they are. He's gonna show the crowds their motives, and I think most importantly, their methods. And so as we open today in this discourse, what we're learning, and what we will learn through the whole of it, is a bit of an object lesson on how corrupt men and women can use godliness as a means of gain at our expense. 
Now Israel's had a long history of this kind of behavior, a long history of corrupt leaders leading people astray, their kings and priests and prophets and elders and so on. They had encouraged Israel at times to engage in idolatry. Of course, when I mention prophets in that list, I'm not mentioning the legitimate ones, I'm mentioning the false ones. And this pattern of poor leadership didn't start with the kings or the prophets. It traces all the way back to Aaron. As far as I can see, Aaron is probably the first example of a leader over the nation of Israel failing them when Moses went up on the mountain and Aaron was quick to make the golden calf. But that tradition of corrupt leadership certainly didn't stop with him. It goes through the time of judges, the time in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes, through the times of the kings, both north and south. And there was a point in Israel's history when one of their prophets laid out the case against all of the corrupt leaders of Israel. That came in the time of Ezekiel, shortly before Israel's captivity in the nation of Babylon. Let me just read you a short passage from Ezekiel chapter 34 and listen to what the Lord says about these men who have corrupted Israel. Ezekiel 34, one, then the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened. The diseased, you've not healed. The broken, you've not bound up. The scattered, you've not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. Lost. But with force and severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. That's the indictment that God spoke to Israel about through Ezekiel in his day saying that that generation of leaders had taken advantage of God's flock rather than leading them properly and caring for them. And he speaks metaphorically, using a metaphor we've seen Jesus use about shepherds and sheep. And he says these leaders of Israel were literally slaughtering the sheep that they were supposed to guard and feed. They were eating the fat, clothing themselves with the wool. It's a great picture, right? So instead of sacrificing themselves for the sake of those under their care, they're sacrificing the people for their own sake. And that led to a pronouncement of woe in that day and yet again today in the story of chapter 23. In Jesus' day, you had religious sects like Pharisees, Sadducees, as we've said, and they are continuing in the corrupt leadership style of their forefathers. They are turning this idea of godliness becoming a means of gain into a science. They had perfected it. They took advantage of those under their charge at every turn, and they used their positions of religious power for personal gain. And it was their corruption that was ultimately the cause for Israel turning against their own Messiah, which is what we learn about in this chapter. And so in Israel's case, history just repeated itself. Yet another generation of bad leaders leading yet another generation of Israel into exile. So in verse two, Jesus begins his explanation of these men and their methods and their corrupt ways by saying, these are the guys who seat themselves in the chair of Moses, but yet they say one thing and do another. Now the seat of Moses was a literal 
chair, usually found by the local synagogue, usually made out of stone, set up maybe in front of or inside of the synagogue of a local Jewish town. And in that chair would sit a judge who presided over court cases when someone was accused of violating the law of Moses. And under that system of Pharisaic Judaism, it was the Pharisees who were the self-appointed judges of the law. And so when Jesus says they sat in the chair, he's referring to their duty as those who would judge others with respect to the law. And interestingly, Jesus said when they sit in that chair and they perform that duty, the nation of Israel should be listening to their judgments. They should heed their judgments because they were the judges of the law. They should be obeyed as they sat in that chair. Look, no one ever benefits by being contrary to authority, by becoming a rebel to authority. And so Jesus says, you should do what they say in that respect. Because when they sat in the seat, they weren't bad judges. They weren't bad judges of the law. The problem wasn't their words. The problem was their actions didn't match their words. Jesus says that while they were judging others, strictly, I might add, for their violations of the law, they themselves were circumventing the law whenever it suited them. Jesus said that they were not doing what they say. And to understand his condemnation of these men, we need to revisit a little bit how they lived and how Pharisees operated. Pharisees were known probably most of all for their scrupulous religious lifestyle. They observed elaborate daily rituals in what they did. On a, it, it, in fact, it's a scale that's kind of hard for us to imagine today. You might have seen religious people in one tradition or another and thought, oh, I could never live that way, but they don't hold a candle to the way Pharisees lived. These guys observed rules just without end, rules for fasting, rules for washing, rules for praying, rules for studying, rules for how they wear their clothes, rules for how they wear their hair, from waking until bed. I mean, they literally lived a rabbinical code that was a little bit like a prison without bars. Uh, Their entire life was controlled by these rules, rules that the rabbis themselves invented, men like the Pharisees invented for themselves and for Jewish culture. And as they went about their day complying with all of these rules, they appeared to others who might be watching as men who had achieved religious perfection. Everyone looked up to them because of their religious fervor, because of their uncompromising devotion to piety. You just could not imagine someone who pleased God more than a Pharisee did. But Jesus says that's not actually the way it was, that in reality, These guys were not the upstanding, pious, God-fearing men that they portrayed themselves to be before the crowds. Their whole life was an act. It was an illusion designed to impress people. When no one was actually watching these guys, they wouldn't even bother doing the things that they were telling everyone else that God said you had to do. Jesus said they were saying one thing in that regard, but doing another, and that is the definition of hypocrisy. The fact that these guys were willing to set aside the rules when no one else was watching just goes to prove that their public devotion to those rules was just an act. They knew better. They knew the rules were worthless. They knew they didn't matter. They knew it was all a game. So why did they engage in such an elaborate act? I mean, why put themselves under that kind of scrutiny at all times? Well, the answer is it was a means to earthly gain. It brought them influence and honor 
and power and most of all wealth. And in this chapter, Jesus lays out the case against these corrupt leaders and the methodology that they use to become powerful and wealthy. He exposes how they played this game and how they used it to their advantage through a series of maneuvers. And I'm gonna take us through those maneuvers or steps as I call them today because Jesus begins the chapter by outlining them. And then as we dive deeper into it in the few weeks to come, we're really gonna understand it better. The first step of their strategy was placing burdens on people, Jesus said. And in verse four, he compares them to a merchant, a man who has a a, a bundle of goods that he needs to take to market and sell. Now, a merchant going to market wouldn't work in the marketplace. The marketplace was not the place of his business. It was the place he sold his wares. He'd make his materials back in his home or in his shop. And so when it came time for the merchant to go to market with his merchandise, he would commonly lay out a, a section of cloth or linen on the, on the ground. He'd put his goods on that cloth, arranging them so. Then he would pull the corners of that together and tie it up into a bundle with ropes. Now you have this bundle of merchandise. And at that point, he would set that bundle on the back of or the shoulders of a donkey or a beast of burden. The donkey, in effect, bore the weight of these precious things that this man had to sell and would help the merchant by taking them to the marketplace. And Jesus says, that's how you need to understand the Pharisees' deception. The first step in their deception was placing burdens on the backs of people. You have to realize that for a Pharisee, every rule, every restriction that they managed to incorporate into their precious Mishnah, this rule book of rabbinical uh, rituals that was invented by the rabbis, every time they introduced a new rule into this work, it became a prized possession for them. I mean, when a rabbi was successful in adding a rule to the misvod, the misvod is a, the, the canon of Jewish religious life, when they could expand the mitzvah with a, a new rule of some kind, man, that was a great career achievement. That, that could be the height of your rabbinical life to have one of your rules incorporated into the Mishnah. And so a Pharisee cherished a rule like that, like it was one of their children. Uh, I mean, much in the same way that the merchant is cherishing this prized merchandise that they've put so much time and effort into creating. And so just like a merchant going to market, you, you want to care for this inventory you have, and the Pharisee's inventory is their rules, but here's the key. Just like that merchant, the Pharisees weren't willing to bear the burden of their own merchandise. That is to say, they put their rules on the Jewish people, and they made the Jewish people labor under the restrictions of those rules like a donkey weighed down by a bunch of merchandise. Remember, we're not talking about the law of Moses now. We're not talking about God's law. We're talking about the Pharisees' man-made rules, which had been codified over many years and made a part of a book called the Mishnah, which came to have the same weight as Scripture. In fact, by the time it was all said and done, Jews saw the Mishnah as more important than Scripture. That's what we're talking about. Those rules were Pharisaic Judaism. And the Jewish people obeyed those rules because they had been told by their leaders, by the rabbis, by the Pharisees, that these rules were like the law of God. In fact, they were equal to the law of God. In fact, they were better than the law of God. Now, following rules of any kind always lends the appearance of piety and religious devotion. But the Bible's clear that following rules never produces 
Righteousness or holiness. Paul says in Romans that no one ever came to righteousness by means of following the law. That's true for God's law, and it's certainly true in the case of the Mishnah. Trying to follow rules is merely a way of reminding ourselves over and over again that we're sinful because self-evidently we can't keep them. Not well enough, not perfectly, and that's the standard. You have to be equal to the glory of God, Paul says, which is to say even one sin is enough to disqualify us from heaven. Nevertheless, the Pharisees were determined rule keepers, thinking it made them righteous before God and made them rich among men. But even the Pharisees had their limits when it came to rule keeping. So when they began to strain under the burdens of their own rules, which they were giving to everyone else too, that's when they began to cheat the system. They were hypocrites who kept the rules only when people were watching and ignored them when it suited them. Jesus says in verse four, they weren't even willing to lift the smallest finger, which is a, a euphemism. What he's saying there is they ignored even the smallest rule, even the easiest ones that you could have done with no effort at all. They put those aside too. Why? Because they didn't care about them, not from the reasons they gave others. This wasn't truly about being righteous in their minds. It was about a means to a greater end for them. The rules of Pharisaic Judaism were oppressive and they were virtually impossible to keep And that was the point. That was what they were after. Because as the people tried to follow their impossible rules, those people would soon find themselves failing and falling further and further behind in the effort to be like the Pharisees, to be like God, to be righteous. And as they struggled under that burden, like an overweighted donkey, they would grow discouraged. They would get hopeless. They would get desperate for help. I mean, imagine the despair and the emptiness that Israel would feel every time they struggled to live up to these standards set by the Pharisees and then failed time and time again. And that's the way it works, by the way, with legalism. You wanna know what legalism is about? That's it in a nutshell. Legalism is substituting rules for the joy of a true relationship with the Lord. Now, in the case of God's law, the one he gave Israel through Moses, the Lord expected Israel to learn through the attempts of keeping it about the futility of trying to become righteous through works of law. And in that futility, they would look elsewhere for a solution and ultimately to the grace of God in the Messiah. So when Jesus came to Israel, offering that freedom, the Pharisees undermined him because he was threatening their system of rules. And they portrayed themselves to the people as a solution to the difficulties of keeping the Mishnah, and Jesus was an alternative solution that they saw as a competition to them. And that brings us to step two of this strategy, as I call it, their methodology. And step two is they cultivated a reputation for piety among men. That is, in verse five, Jesus says, the Pharisees did religious deeds to be noticed by men, which is to say, not by God. And he cites two examples of this extreme behavior. He, he says they broaden phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels on their garments. Now, both of these behaviors are uniquely Jewish traditions that the Pharisees would manipulate to serve their own purposes. Let me explain them to you. First, phylacteries. Phylacteries are, are these small wooden boxes that uh, Orthodox Jews will tie to their hair, literally right up above their forehead, just sitting right up on top of their head, And they'll also tie them to their left arm with this elaborate uh, series of straps that just twirl around their arms. And inside these little wooden boxes, 
called phylacteries, they place small scraps of paper on which are written three specific passages of Scripture. The rabbis have prescribed exactly which three passages need to be written and put in these boxes. Now, nowhere in the law of God is Israel ever told to make these boxes, to stick them on their head, or much less what scriptures are supposed to be in them. Uh, The rabbis invented all of this practice out of a very wooden interpretation of Deuteronomy 6. Let me read you that passage. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, the Lord tells Israel about the commandments of God. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and, talk, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as, a frontal, as frontals on your forehead. Now in Deuteronomy 6, 7, he tells Israel, teach and observe the law at all times, whether you're home, whether you're away, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. I mean, the point is, at all times. And then in verse 8, he says, euphemistically, Bind the law in your hands, which is a way of saying you should follow the law in the, 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 the work of everyday life, in every work and in every deed, in everything you do. And then he says you should also have the law on your forehead, which is a way of saying keep the commandments of God foremost on your mind at all times. Now the Pharisees did not interpret this passage in the obvious and common sense fashion And they chose not to because they had a reason to choose a hyper-literal and absurd view of the text. Here's the reason. Because keeping the law in your mind at all times isn't something you can show off. No one will see it. No one can praise you for it. And doing the work of your life according to the law, that won't stand out. That will actually blend in if everybody is doing the right thing. So rabbis in this self-serving, hyper-literal interpretation of Deuteronomy 6, 8, decided they could interpret this passage in a different way and gain attention by it. They invented the practice of phylacteries. Wearing a box on your face is a surefire way to get attention, to get someone to look at you and say, man, that's different, what's all that about? And if there was ever any doubt in your mind that the rabbi's motivation was a self-serving motivation for attention, Jesus gives us proof of it in verse five. He says, these men like to broaden their phylacteries, which means they made their boxes larger and larger over time. Because think about it, once everybody is wearing a little box on their head, you're not standing out anymore when you have a box on your head. But if your box is a little bigger than everybody else's box, now you stand out again. And so the Pharisees took that next step at some point of enlarging or or broadening their phylactery boxes more than everyone else, and they did that so that people would marvel at their piety and say, man, you have to wear an even heavier box on your head? You're even better than I am, and so on. Now that practice exposes the true reason, the true motivation behind this practice of wearing phylacteries. It wasn't an exercise in honoring God. I mean, maybe for some it became that, but the point is its origins didn't find its purpose in that. It wasn't a way of remembering God's word for crying out loud. It's about being noticed by men, Jesus said. Doing your religious deeds in such a way that people would look at you and admire you for it. And he says they did the same thing with tassels on their garments. 
He's referring to Deuteronomy 22, 12. The, the Jews were commanded in the law that they should have a, a certain hem on the bottom of their garments, little tassels that hang off of their hem. Today, uh, Jews obviously aren't wearing the same outfits they did back in Jesus' day, but they've adopted a prayer shawl instead, and on the shawl's edges, you still see these same tassels. And now in this case, the law in Deuteronomy 12, uh, 22, 12 says, you shall make yourselves tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourselves. So in this case, the law did specifically require tassels. That's not wrong. But the Pharisees found yet another way to play this to their advantage. They made their tassels longer than other people's tassels. Now, why would that matter, right? Who cares how long your tassels are? Well, in a culture in which conformity to specific rules is a big deal, any diversion from that conformity stands out. And here again, it was for the purpose of gaining attention, to have a longer tassel than the average and make people wonder, what does that mean and what does that say about the person? And in the end, it conveyed that they were more holy. So step two of this strategy was a whole series of things that these men would do to portray themselves before the public, before Israel, as experts, experts in knowing the law, experts in keeping the law, and in doing so, setting themselves apart from the rest of the culture. Jesus says, you know, the reality is they weren't even keeping the rules themselves. They didn't even bother trying. So the deeds that they did do, they did in a calculated way to gain attention, to create the illusion of piety, yet in secret, they were just hypocrites. Which brings us to step three. Because at some point, all of this behavior has to turn to profit or it's not worth it. And in step three, these men turned their religious positions of authority into economic and political power. And they relied on a classic technique of marketing. You know, marketing is fundamentally about creating a need in the mind of the consumer so that then you can offer them a product as the solution to this need. I think the best example of that today is the pharmaceutical industry. You know, you see on TV the ads for new drugs all the time. It seems like they're always inventing some new syndrome or or condition that you never knew existed so that now you'll worry that you might have it and you would get the drug that they tell you solves the problem. And that, in a nutshell, was the con game of the Pharisees. They created a disease among the people that only they could cure. They had established so many religious rules that no one could possibly keep, telling them that all of these rules came from God, and therefore, if you did not do them, you would fall under condemnation. And when the people tried and failed and became so desperate about whether they were going to be judged by God, then they naturally would turn to the experts who have been showing themselves on street corners to be men who could keep this law, although it was all an act. And so, At step three, the strategy really hits the home stretch. Those moments when the Pharisees became a source of expertise to those who were struggling, they could turn that to their advantage. People who fear the judgment of God are willing to do just about anything to gain a seal of approval from some kind of religious authority. So it was a quid pro quo arrangement, basically. The Pharisees would demand certain favors, certain kinds of ingratiated actions on the part of the individual so that they can then in turn go to the person and assure them, oh, your sins are being overlooked or I absolve you of your guilt or I can assure you God is not displeased with you or whatever. In the way that men will often manipulate people's fear. And in verses six through seven, 
Jesus refers to step three when he talks about the kind of things that the Pharisees sought for in uh, the, the process of being experts. Notice he says they coveted honor and power, and ultimately it led to wealth. He goes through four specific areas of Jewish life, and they work together as part of the plan of the Pharisees. In each of these, they're seeking honor, but they're each a little different. First, he says they loved honor at banquets. And I think that probably refers to the Jewish feast meals that take place seven times a year during the feasts of the, of the uh, annual calendar or on perhaps other important occasions like a wedding. The seating for a, a formal event like that always followed a certain protocol. And the seat of most honor, of greatest honor, was always the seat next to the host, closest to the host. And the Pharisees expected that seat. If they were at the event, that was the seat they expected to sit in. And what it would mean for them is that they were being publicly honored as sitting at the top of the societal pecking order. No one in that room had a greater place in society at that moment than they did. Secondly, it says they wanted the chief seats in the synagogue. Now, the synagogue seats were arranged much like our churches today, just a, a series of rows of seats going back from a, uh, a stage area at the beginning or at the, at the front of the room. And in the front of the room, there would be a place where the Torah scroll was kept. And the nicest, the best, the most honorable seat in all of the congregation were those front row seats closest to the Torah scroll. And again, the Pharisees wanted those seats because it would suggest they were the highest religious authority and they wanted to be at the top of the religious pecking order in Israel as well. No one should challenge their view of God. No one should challenge their interpretation of the law. Thirdly, they wanted respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And this isn't just a reference to people who might be frequenting the market and see them as they walk by. This is more a specific uh, mention of the merchant's themselves, because the marketplace was the commercial center of life in every Jewish town. Every merchant, every businessman had a shop somewhere in the marketplace if they wanted to do business. And spending time in the marketplace inevitably meant spending time around wealthy, influential businessmen. And the Pharisees sought respectful greetings from those men. And more than anything, they sought for their money And so you can imagine that as they interact with these men in that setting, they're gonna be seeking financial favor from these wealthy men, these wealthy merchants, perhaps discounted prices, perhaps free merchandise, perhaps kickbacks of whatever kind. And then fourthly, finally, at the end of verse seven, he says these guys loved to be called rabbi, which means, of course, teacher, literally. But it begs the question, why do they care so much about being called teacher? I mean, in our day, for example, we should honor teachers more than we do. I think there's probably more than a few parents right now with kids at home honoring their teachers far more than they ever used to. But nonetheless, it's typically not the case that teachers are seen as a high station in society, regrettably. Why did these men seek for that title then? Well, in a Jewish setting, things were different. Jewish religious training took place not in large industrial schools, but rather in small groups of students or disciples who followed one man who was their rabbi. And that man ruled their lives. From the moment that relationship was established, a rabbi was the most important person in a disciple's life. A disciple was expected to fully submit to that man's authority, to follow his instructions without questioning, and his authority, the rabbi's authority, took precedence over every other authority in that person's life, even over parental authority. 
you can find disciples calling their rabbi teacher, rabbi, but also calling him father at times or calling him master at times. And that's why the Pharisees were so attracted to that title because it gave them the power and the control that they needed to make this whole system work. Because Israel was under Roman law at this time. Romans had no respect for Israel's law or for their religious leaders. They couldn't care less about Pharisees. They just allowed Israel and the Pharisees to practice their religion to keep the peace. So long as they did what they were told, they kept the leaders on a short leash, uh, and if they didn't cause trouble, Rome would more or less leave them alone. But under that kind of system, the Pharisees had very little real power. They didn't have the power of the sword. They couldn't take a life without Roman uh, agreement. They couldn't tax uh, except through the Jewish form of coinage, through the shekel. They couldn't tax using a denarius, which was the coin of the Roman realm. It was a very limited kind of authority. And so this Pharisaic system of control is only going to work if the Jewish people concede to following it. And if they're going to have to have that concession, They needed a system that could provide that social, religious, economic, and political power through some mechanism. And the title rabbi was that key to gaining that power. In Jewish society, a rabbi was worthy of that kind of devotion. That's how the culture perceived the title. And so that's how Pharisees corrupted the system for personal gain. They made religion impossibly hard, They pretended to be experts at it, milking it for all they could when the people were watching while not doing anything about it when the people weren't there. And then when those same people came to them for help in keeping this impossible system and pleasing God, they would turn that around and use it to their advantage to leverage the people for wealth, for favors, for honor, for whatever they wanted. And they did it all because they were rabbis and no one could challenge a rabbi's authority. Now I want you to take note of how Jesus warns his disciples about following in the footsteps of these men, beginning in verse eight. And I would bet that if you had not read this text yet, you might have assumed that Jesus is gonna say something like, beware, do not be hypocrites. Beware, do not be greedy. Beware, do not manipulate people, or whatever else we know that these men did. But that's not what he does. Look at the warning he issues. In verse eight, Jesus says, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now notice he does not warn us about all of the bad acting that the Pharisees were guilty of. He only warns us about one thing. He says, don't seek for the titles that the Pharisees sought for. Don't seek to be called rabbi or father or leader, and really the the term in Greek should be better translated master, because that's what it's referring to, this idea that the rabbi was a man's master. He says, don't be calling anybody rabbi, father, or master. Now, why did he warn us about those titles? Because it is an early sign of corruption, an early sign of seeking for self-gain in religious service, and it's often the first step in taking advantage of a flock. 
Now, let's just be clear here. Titles in the church are not wrong in and of themselves. I mean, Jesus himself assigned some titles. He called some of his disciples apostles. He, he told Peter, you're the rock. I mean, a title in and of itself is not the enemy here. Uh, a title is a problem when it's something pre- people seek for out of a corrupt nature, out of a heart that chooses to do it for the personal gain. That's the issue here. In fact, the language makes that clear in the original Greek. Jesus says, do not be called rabbi, and the Greek word he uses for called is kaleo. It literally is translated summon or invite. That's really the word, so a better translation would be, do not invite people to call you rabbi. Because an invite, inviting that kind of title is inviting attention. It's inviting authority. It's the starting point to becoming a Pharisee. Once your pride gains a perch in your heart, once pride gains perch in a minister's heart, whoever that is, it's only a matter of time before that person will begin to follow the rest of the Pharisaic pattern. Soon, you find yourself craving for attention, for compliments. You're you're hungry for the power that comes with the position. You like those moments when people ask for your opinion and your advice, and you get to tell them what to do, even if it's stuff that you yourself would never do. And you're willing to abuse others at some point because you see the opportunity through that manipulative relationship to gain the things you've always wanted but can't get any other way. It's happened a million times. It's happening around us all the time. And it starts with something as simple as seeking for a title. I'll tell you in my own experience as a pastor that when I find people's interest in titles preceding their work in ministry, it's always a warning sign. Jesus tells the church, do not seek to be called teacher in the rabbinical sense of how that word was used. That is, someone who would claim to have a corner on religious truth because of how it helps us develop this position of power and authority in someone else's life. Remember, rabbis in Jesus' day were considered the sole custodians of truth when it came to God. Whatever rabbi said could not be challenged. Pharisees manipulated that power. They used it to control the minds of Israel. We're not to look to anyone on earth as the sole source of spiritual truth in our life because Jesus says when it comes down to it, we're all brothers and sisters. What he's reminding us of is this. No one brings anything of inherent value into the process of teaching or for that matter, learning the Bible. I wasn't born knowing the Bible. I know that's probably hard for some of you to believe, but truthfully, uh, I was not born knowing this. Neither were you. Neither was anyone else you ever heard teach. Neither was any other pastor who's ever lived. So that just begs the question, how did any of us learn it in the first place? Where did all the knowledge about God come from that we all share with one another? Well, it only came from one source, from the Spirit. Because as Paul says, only the Spirit knows the mind of Christ. So if you know something true about God, you got it from the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, that's why the Spirit is our teacher. He's our only teacher. And just because the Spirit might happen to use one of us to teach another of us in the body of Christ, that doesn't mean we get any credit for that. You're not gaining knowledge from me. If you've learned anything about the Bible from me, you didn't get it from me because I didn't get it from, I didn't have it instinctively. I got it from someone else. I got it from the Spirit too. We've all learned from the same Spirit. We're just, I think one pastor, a friend of mine, used to call himself a tube he said, I'm just a tube. I just move data from one point to the other. He says, I didn't in, you know, author anything. How much credit do you give the, the pipes in your house that deliver water? You know, they're just incidental. They're necessary, but you don't really care about them. I think that's how we should understand teaching in the church in general. So in that regard, you might call me a teacher, and that's fine, but I am not the teacher. I'm not your teacher. I am not your source of spiritual knowledge. 
Likewise, in the same sense, we don't call anyone our spiritual father in the way that a rabbi was called father, meaning someone who gives us our spiritual life. No one authored our faith for us. No one made us a Christian. No one even, quote, brought us to faith. I know we use those terms, but that's not literally what happened. In the case of a rabbi, disciples saw that man as their source, as the reason they were following God, as the way they should follow God. And they used to look at each other and say, we're rivals, you have your rabbi, I have mine, we'll see who's right in the end. Their rabbi was literally their God in that respect. But we only have one spiritual source. We only have one who brought us to faith. We only have one who called us into this walk. He is the Father seated on the throne in heaven. And you might choose to call someone Father in a familial sense, a paternal sense, that's fine, certainly, but no one on earth is your spiritual father. Finally, don't call anyone leader or master, as I said, in the way that a master owned a rabbi, a disciple's life, because in your walk with Christ, we should give no one that level of spiritual control save Christ himself. That is, Christ directs your steps, Christ leads you, he might speak to you through the godly counsel of other men and women in the church, but in the end, he is your shepherd, you hear his voice. Now, having said all of that, and as we end, I know we have you know, pastors, elders, we have teachers, other leaders, and so on, and I encourage you to respect the roles that they play in your life. God has given them to us as a blessing, as a means of edification, but they are not single points of authority. That is, just because you like certain pastors or like certain teachers doesn't make them infallible, and it certainly doesn't mean that you choose their view over everyone else's view when it comes to some issue or question of life or of scripture. These people, including myself, are fallible. We are sinful, men and women. We are stumbling through this life just like you are. And if we offer you anything of spiritual value at any point, it's only because the Lord showed up And he did a work through us for your benefit. And as such, we can take no credit for it. But it's also why you don't put too much emphasis on any one person. You don't assign these kinds of titles. If we understand this, if we maintain this point of view, not only will we protect ourselves against the manipulative efforts of corrupt people who might come into our life in the church or elsewhere, but we will avoid becoming one of those corrupt people ourselves. Now, if you've come into this church either from earlier experiences in this room or you've only come upon us recently through the web streaming that we've been doing of late, let me tell you that this church exists to free people from the oppression of legalism and corrupt teaching. This church is about understanding the scriptures truly as the Lord appoints by his spirit teaching us and to live them out in the grace that he gives us to do it for the purposes he ordained to be a witness to the world, to the truth of Jesus as Messiah, and so that we might serve him and glorify him in the process. We're gonna do that by learning together. We're gonna keep our eyes on him, not on men or women, and I'm gonna tell you right now, people let you down, but God never lets you down, and that's the kind of church we are. I hope that's the kind of church you've been looking for. As we go deeper into this chapter in the weeks to come, we're gonna learn more about what these men did, and I hope become better equipped to avoid making the same mistakes ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for godly men and women, for they are a precious group and sadly needed in the church. I pray for those, Father, who have listened to this message today, who may be under the oppressive leadership of men and women who are not listening to you and not living in your spirit or teaching according to your word. I pray that you've opened their eyes and their hearts to better things. 
I pray that they might be moved to better places, to where they can find the care they need from shepherds who truly desire the best for them, who will teach them according to your word. For those, Father, who are already under that care, we thank you. We praise you for giving them that good shepherd, that good under-shepherd, who serves the good shepherd. And I pray, Father, that that would continue. And Father, I ask for your blessing on this church that we would never be a place that would succumb to the oppression of legalism or to the corruption of those who would seek to make godliness a means of gain. Protect us, Father, from that and help us to serve you in a true heart. Thank you for this morning. And Father, we pray that we regather again soon in your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.